from the University of Texas at Austin, KUT Radio. This is In Black America. I'm talking about in education, although people in other fields are, are apparently finding it useful and using it too. But I'm just talking about business models around education that really depend on high levels of economic and racial segregation to work. So, for example, the rise of virtual schools. I don't know, do y'all have those in Texas? I don't know if you have a lot of virtual schools in Texas. There's some places like Florida, Ohio, you know, there's some states where it's a big growth industry. Uh, Philadelphia schools, city schools are trying to, uh, some of the people who are on the, the Reform Commission there were saying they'd like to see three quarters of the students be, be educated via virtual schools. So virtual schools, their business model works best or is rolled out usually in communities where they have a lot of what they call 90-90-90 schools. So 90% of the schools are below federal set poverty levels, or the students, 90% of the students in the schools are below poverty levels. Dr. Noliway Rooks, Director of American Studies and Associate Professor of Africana Studies at Cornell University, and author of Cutting School, Privatization, Segregation, and the End of Public Education, published by the New Press. In the book, Rooks explores the question many are asking, why are public schools more segregated now than in years past, and why are public schools failing? To answer these and other questions regarding public education, Rooks followed the money, tracing the financing of segregated education in this country, beginning with the Civil War reconstruction to the current discussion regarding school vouchers. Having experienced two different educational systems growing up, she found it interesting that those in support of quality education were more interested in the business of education. I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr., and welcome to another edition of In Black America. On this week's program, Cutting School with author Dr. Noliway Rooks, Director of American Studies at Cornell University, Part 2, In Black America. Our schools are no longer uh, a place dedicated to providing an out, a leg up. For, for students. Increasingly, they're becoming places that are all about who can benefit and who can make money. And I want people to understand that there are folks who are, I want them to see what's going on, because a lot of things, a lot of the time, I think we see what's in our backyard, like we see education through the lens of our families or our past um, individually. And so one of the things I'm trying to do is raise an alarm about what's happening across the country. So if you, if you don't know what's happening in Detroit because you live in Maine, or if you, you know, California, you think this is the way education is working everywhere, then I want you to see what's happening in Florida so that you can really see that this is a nationwide issue that's affecting people who are most vulnerable, who, who need our help. You know, they need our support. Um, and I'm hoping that this will be a kind of a kind of moment where we see it so that we can join the battle that the young people have started. In recent years, students and parent organizations have taken to protests, walkouts, and demonstrations of what they perceive as the taking of authority over the education they believe belongs at the local level. In her newest book entitled Cutting School, Dr. Nolaway Rooks crowns the making and unmaking of public education in this country. Rooks provides an analysis of our separate and unequal schools and states that profiting from our nation's failure to provide a high-quality education to all students have become very big business. In fact, private investment in education increased from $2.5 million in 1990 to $4 billion just a decade later. 
and between charter and virtual schools, the investment and achievement gap only grows. It also should be noted that African-American families are one of the fastest growing segments in the homeschooling world. On today's program, we conclude our conversation with Dr. Rooks. If you want to put gasoline in buses for the express purpose of uh, fostering integration, if you're going to move either black or white students from black schools to white schools with, with buses, you it is illegal for you to use federal funds to put gas in the buses. So while they didn't, he did not, you know, directly say, we're going to bring back in a, uh, segregation, you know, we're going to make it illegal for black and white students to, to be together. If you can't get them like, back and forth, if you have denied people the means of traveling at the federal level, then you're interfering, you know, in a way uh, with the idea of, of integration. Nixon, really, what he ended up just going ahead and deciding was, let's make this sort of devil's bargain. This, like, fund uh, segregated inner city schools to a much, much higher level and let white suburbs at the time, you know, now a lot of white people are moving back into the inner city, but at the time, it was, you know, the suburbs were, were the places that were white. And there's this saying between North and South, people in the, the civil rights movement in, in demarcating the, the difference would say, you know, in the South, uh, white people don't care how close you get as long as you don't get too high. In the North, they don't care how high you get as long as you don't get too close. So that, that idea of you could, you could, you know, in the North, you know, people were sort of like, yeah, sure, go be doctors, have your whole own communities, run for stuff. You know, in Chicago, they, they had whole aldermen and, you know, you could have a whole black infrastructure. Just don't try to get too close to us. You can get high, but, you know, in the South, because of the way communities were, a lot of communities were right, right on top of each other. You're talking one, one street over, you know, hopscotching. So they were like, yeah, you can get close. You can live on the next block, but don't try to, to rise. You know, that's, that's our line in the sand. And, it, and that really plays out when you, when you see education policy going from Nixon, who was like, okay, you know, like you, y'all just stay over there in the, in the suburbs and the black people, y'all just stay in the urban areas and I'll give you money, just stay away. And then by, by Reagan, what people decided, one report after another, got together and said, you know, Really, all these social issues and this integration, it's, it's, it's really, it's harming American education as a whole. If we look at how all of American education is performing, it, we're going down the tubes, and, and the Reagan administration decided that we were going down the tubes based on a lot of, a number of different reports that, that they commissioned, in part because we weren't training people to be workers for business, and we had been focusing too much on social issues. So they said, okay, let's uh, take all of this integration and rising people up from the bottom and uh, education as a lever of change out. And let's just talk about how American education can benefit American businesses solely. And so we did that for a while. And then along comes privatization, which, which you know, turns into this whole thing. Like, let's don't even have public schools. Let's take the 500 to 600 billion dollars a year in funding for education and let's fi fi figure out how to give it to private companies so they can do what they need to do with it. So at every step along the way, you see various ways that I call it the, a, a system of plunder and hoarding. So you either see people coming after the money that's been put aside for the education from the Rosenwald 
years to uh, the 1970s, 80s, 90s, the money that's been put aside to educate our most vulnerable, all of a sudden people figure out a way to, to get it for themselves. They plunder it. And then they, there's another followed by a period where then they hoard it for themselves. So they get it all and then they come up with ways of making sure that then no one else can participate in it. No one else can have access to it. It's only for the use of whites. How did you come up with the term segronomics? <laughs> I was really trying to think about, you know, I was thinking that as I was looking back, like I came up with the term after I finished the book. And I said, you know, this just keeps like with with regularity. I would find some document where uh, some elected official would say some version of why do those inward people need schools? Right. Like, why do they even need schools like it would be they would just use the more colorful language regularly starting in the 1890s going forward. Why do they even need schools? Followed by very uh, on the hot on the heels of people proposing business solutions, solutions that would benefit newly emerging businesses to provide them schools and with a lesser form of education. So the term segronomics really just refers to I'm talking about in education, although people in other fields are, are apparently finding it useful and using it, too. But I'm just talking about business models around education that really depend on high levels of economic and racial segregation to work. So, for example, the rise of virtual schools. I don't know. Do y'all have those in Texas? I don't know if you have a lot of virtual schools in Texas. We have some. I've seen some television commercials that that, okay, that yeah. top those schools. There's some places like Florida, Ohio. You know, there's some states where it's a big growth industry. Philadelphia schools, city schools are trying to uh, some of the people who are on the, the Reform Commission there were saying they'd like to see three quarters of the students uh, be be educated via virtual schools. So virtual schools, their business model works best or is rolled out usually in communities where they have a lot of what they call 90-90-90 schools. So 90 percent of the schools are below federal set poverty levels, or the students, 90% of the students in the schools are below poverty levels, 90% are of color, and 90% are underperforming. When you get, so those, that's racial and economic segregation, right? Like that's what they're saying we need in order to put in place these business models um, for because then we can say that we're going to provide education to this group, and that's a sweet spot for state and federal funds. You know, if you say that you're going into the poorest of the poor and you have some kind of model that's going to raise, excuse me, achievement, you're, you're able to, to get even extra money. Or you think about uh, businesses like Teach for America, you know, which is a 400, last time I looked, it was close to $400 million a year business. But they actually charge often between $2,000 and $5,000 per teacher to each school district where they send them in. So you already have really, really poor school districts um, that are being defunded, schools are closing. And instead of hiring the teachers that you don't have to pay a finder's fee for, a lot of levers get pulled. So it's to your benefit to hire Teach for America teachers, but then you gotta pay them two to $5,000 per teacher as a finder's fee. This is not happening in upper in upper class schools, you will not find, you know, the majority of teachers in the Princeton public schools being Teach for America teachers. That is not going to happen. You're not going to find them in Ithaca public schools being teacher, Teach for America teachers because the parents would rise up. 
You know, like the parents would be like, why am I somebody teaching my child who's got six weeks of of teacher training? But when you're talking about poor communities, people sort of feel seem to feel like, well, they should just be lucky somebody won't teach them. So where's that finding fee coming from? The school district funds. Taken out from the school district, which is yeah. federal monies. Yes, yes. Yeah. Federal and state money. Yeah. Taxpayer money. It's all taxpayer money. But that's a business model that only works uh, in communities that have very high levels of racial and economic segregation. So that's what segregonomics refers to. And, it, you know, it goes back, as I was talking about the Rosenwald schools earlier, that's a form of, of segregonomics because who else goes in and says, I'm going to make my, my mark, my philanthropic mark, providing education to poor communities, and yet you only putting up one-third of the money that, that needs to go into, you know, having the schools built. And then the people who are putting in the money get absolutely no credit for it. So that's where the term came from. Dr. Rooks, what damage can occur? We have a secretary of education with no public school experience or involvement whatsoever. Yeah. Well, see, here's the thing. For a lot of the so-called education reform, the folks who decided that, that it was a, sure was a shame that uh, poor kids were being educated in the ways that they were. A few seem to have very much, at least in the early days, like with Wendy Cop and, you know, the folks who started uh, the KIPP schools and uh, the Edison schools, like the people who were at the at the in the 80s and 90s who really made the, that uh, that kind of thinking and talk into a business and found out ways, you know, to really recruit college students. Like it became a career choice on elite college campuses to go and fix and save, you know, poor people, save people of color and fix these schools with with these methods. None of these people had any real involvement with, with black people or black communities. So in a way, I find that less notable for her because I'm looking at no, who who do you know that, that are these like rich people who decided let's save the poor black people who actually went to poor schools or like none of them did. Uh, none of them really know any black people unless their name is Obama. I mean, they, it's not, that is not unusual. But what is unusual is the the uh, she's not being pushed in these directions. It seems as if former secretaries of education have have had constituents who have organized to sort of push them in some of these directions around privatization um, or lobbyists that are, you know, constantly knocking on their door. She came in the door, you know, clear that what she calls government schools, you know, public public education, that the money that was being used could be better spent on letting people go to uh, religious schools, uh, letting them go wherever wherever they wanted to. And it's significant in this idea of segregonomics um, because, you know, from 2014 on, if you think of the school, public school system as a whole, uh, the public school system is now majority of color. It's majority Latino, black, um, and Asian, and majority below uh, federal poverty lines. Just a bare majority. It's like 51% um, in both instances, but still. So the ways that she's talking about moving money around, at this point in America's history, the, the decisions that she's making are overwhelmingly going to impact people of color who are poor. And those are, we are the group, who that is the group, those are the children who, who can afford it least, can afford at least to have more money pulled out of systems, can afford at least to have fewer social workers and 
fewer books, less these these experimental forms of education, you know, tried out on them before you say, whoops, you know, yeah, we tried it for five years and oh, look, it doesn't really seem like it works. So sorry that your whole district, you know, has now been miseducated for five years. Dr. Wilkes, when you when you look at the, the big picture and the decision makers, why don't they get that the systemic problems in the neighborhood socially as being in poverty has a direct effect on the educational attainment of the children that live in that area? I think that we're at a period, uh, it seems like there's something in the air or water or somewhere where we believe that if, uh, if, if there are poor people in America, it's because they want to be poor. It's because they're trying to be poor, because they're not working hard enough, because they don't have enough grit, because they're lazy. The numbers of ways that policymakers find to, to, to say some version of that means that poverty is no longer something that we, we don't seem to, at the policy level, seem to feel like it, it's something that we need to be trying to eradicate or, or look at or, or work on. It's something that individuals who are poor need to solve for themselves. And so given that ethos, there's really just almost no impetus to start talking about, you know, what, what would happen? Like if, if I think they, I just saw in the New York public schools, something like almost 20% of the students are homeless or, or housing insecure. So if not full, how, which housing insecure, they mean you might be couch surfing, you know, like you might be going from one relative or friend to the next every few days and, and sleeping on the couch. But you do not have stable housing. And there's all kinds of programs to try to help these students. Right. But that's a larger kind of problem. And instead of sort of fixing the symptoms, instead of addressing the problem, what is causing that kind of number of students to be how basically functionally homeless, you know? That's a different, that's not, the schools can't fix that. You, other things, other levers have to be pulled to fix that, and we just simply have no interest in it, because you're talking about poor people with no political power. So increasingly, that really seems to be be the issue. Our, our public policy folks are most responsive to the people who have money, and they're not the homeless people, and we don't have lobbyists for homeless people. You know, we don't have deep-pocketed Folks, you know, nobody's going running off to the Trump golf course trying to lobby the president on behalf of homeless people. Like none of that is happening. So as that group expands, as the number of poor people who are in public schools expands, it's hard for me to see how it is that policymakers are going to be able to continue without addressing some of these underlying issues. But then again, I am sure they'll find a way to keep it up, keep doing what they've been doing. Dr. Rooks, I found it interesting when you wrote about I I'm, I don't have the, the 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 page in front of me, but it just popped to in my head about stealing education when parents are are putting down addresses in which there are houses in better educational uh, neighborhoods and they're being prosecuted for it. Oh, the stealing school, yeah, that was something that I really didn't didn't know. Uh, was happening until I went looking for it. Being in the media, I've heard that uh, those type of uh, occurrences were happening. Mm-hmm, yeah. So all over the country, you have, because of the state of schools in poor areas, very often there are higher-performing school districts not that far away. And there's, there's uh, sometimes all over the country, 
people have tried to use a relative's address or a friend's address um, so that their children would be eligible to enroll um, in the higher performing school district. So increasingly, these higher performing school districts are calling that theft. Um, they're calling that educational theft. If you are not a taxpayer in that district and you enroll your child, even if you know you have an address that's in the that's in the district, all over the country, people are considering that a felony. If the if the amount of money, you know, very often the amount of money, eight, ten, fifteen thousand dollars, is at the the level for larceny of a of a felony conviction. So far, the people that I found who've been prosecuted have all been people of color or poor people. I haven't found, like, uh, it's not that middle class and wealthy people don't do the exact same thing. It's that you're not finding them being prosecuted. School districts are making an example out of people who will enroll their child in one of these districts where they're not supposed to, you know, where they're, where they're not legal, as they say. But you say they're having private um, security or detective services? Yeah, some of the places they are doing these surveillance things. Uh, some have actually they're hiring detectives, private investigators to follow people home to school. They're taking pictures of it. Sometimes they're offering rewards of, say, $250. If anyone will turn in a student, like if any of the students, you know, suspect that one of their classmates is not legally registered in the district, they're asked to turn them in and, and will be given $250. One of the, one of the most egregious or um, heart-wrenching instances where this happened, and to my mind, was out in Orinda, California. There was a woman who was a full-time uh, live-in housekeeper who lived in the home of her employers um, with her daughter who, you know, because this was their primary residence, enrolled in the neighborhood school. Uh, at some point, people in the uh, the school district took issue with this and, and asked her to prove her residency, which, you know, she did, in fact, live in the district. But then they said, but you're not paying. You're a worker here. You're not paying taxes. That had not been, there was nothing written that said you had to pay taxes. It was if your primary residence is, but they changed the the emphasis, long story short, this woman had to to make her employers her daughter's legal guardians so that like she had to give them rights to make decisions about her child so her child could go to school. Like that just seems particularly egregious to me. However, there have been the, a woman in Ohio was was sentenced to jail, felony conviction for doing this. And then her father, who's the one who put up, uh, who had offered his address so that the grandchildren, you know, so his grandbabies could go to school. They prosecuted him on fraud. He ended up losing his house, fighting these charges, had a heart attack and died in jail. Man had no criminal conviction, had never been in jail a day in his life. Um, and he ends up in jail for allowing his babies, his grandbabies to use his address. So all across the country, you have these white communities who, and they're not, they're not apologetic about it. They don't feel bad about it. Um, but they're like, you know, somebody got to pay for this. We pay for it. And we don't want it being taken away with a bunch of poor people of color. And so we will put you in jail if we need to, to keep that from happening. Do you see light at the end of the tunnel from writing this narrative? <laughs> yeah, I do. You know, one of the things that I found that I didn't know um, and then I'm grateful to know, is that all over the country, you really have students who are stepping up 
students who, you know, are educated in these school systems who are saying they can no longer wait for adults to, to get this thing right. So they're forming student unions, they're forming protest groups, they're they're litigating different things. They've uh, specifically around the the issue of restorative justice or unequal forms of discipline that are often in minority schools, high poverty minority schools, where you have basically people who are police officers who can do whatever they want to to you, put their hands on you, throw you around. But they are in New York City. They want a, a big conception, concession from the mayor's office around restorative justice so that your first step around discipline is not the police, you know, anymore. In Pennsylvania, there's been some good movement around that you can, around suspension, reducing suspensions and in school and out of school suspensions where you just say, you know, you can't be here anymore. And then bad things happen when you suspend people and have them at home by themselves for weeks at a time. Even out in California at the state level, groups of students, I mean, they have adults who are in and around them, but it's really groups of students um, have have also made some good, good progress. There's also all these stories who that that I, I surprisingly didn't hear a lot about till I went looking. In D.C. last year, there was a, a traditional public school, not a charter school, that the kids there said, you know, we're high school students and we keep looking around and seeing people, you know, sing the praises of charter schools because they're having a 100 percent graduation rate. Let's us figure out how to have a 100 percent graduation rate. Um, and they worked together and they pulled each other through and up and they, you know, got got some enthusiastic adults to to aid and and help them with this. And in last uh, spring, 100 percent of those children um, through their own efforts uh, enrolled in college. So, you know, there th- some of it is there's things that are happening that are good things. We just simply don't hear about them because we only think that good things happen with, you know, more privatized forms of, of education. But I was grateful to find out about and I'm grateful to these young people who are, who are putting in some serious work. And I think we could have more adults join them, you know, join them in their efforts. Well, Dr. Rooks, we could talk about this subject for another hour, but I got one more question. What do you want readers to come away with? I want them to believe that, uh, I want them to see, I want everybody to understand that on our watch, like this has happened on our watch, that our schools are no longer a place dedicated to providing an out, a leg up for, for students. Increasingly, they're becoming places that are all about who can benefit and who can make money. And I want people to understand that there are folks who are, I want them to see what's going on, because a lot of things, a lot of the time, I think we see what's in our backyard, like we see education through the lens of our families or our past um, individually. And so one of the things I'm trying to do is raise an alarm about what's happening across the country. So if you if you don't know what's happening in Detroit because you live in Maine, or if you, you know, California, you think this is the way education is working everywhere, then I want you to see what's happening in Florida so that you can really see that this is a nationwide issue that's affecting people who are most vulnerable, who who need our help. You know, they need our support. And I'm hoping that this will be a kind of a kind of moment where we see it so that we can join the battle that the young people have started. Dr. Nolue Rooks, Director of American Studies and Associate Professor of Africana Studies at Cornell University and author of Cutting School, Privatization, Segregation, and the End of Public Education. We will include our conversation on next week's program. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions as to future In Black America programs, 
Email us at nblackamerica at kut.org. Also, let us know what radio station you heard us over. Remember to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station or of the University of Texas at Austin. You can hear previous programs online at kut.org. Until we have the opportunity again for technical producer David Alvarez, I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr. Thank you for joining us today. Please join us again next week. CD copies of this program are available and may be purchased by writing In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. That's In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. This has been a production of KUT Radio.